Tuberville Island near the Gentoo Penguin Rookery. The presence of the cosmos in the Ross Sea that season resulted from the record whale catch the previous austral summer. Where previously two companies worked the Ross Sea whale population, the 1929 to 1930 summer saw five companies send factory ships and chasers into the Ross Quadrant. In early September, a radio message from Hubert Wilkins announcing his intention to return for further Antarctic flights and inviting himself to Christmas dinner at Little America infuriated Bird. Paul Seipel noted that any mention of Wilkins conjured his leader's ire, but after their winter on site, almost everyone on base perceived the Australian as an interloper. Besides threatening Bird's ambition to fly over the pole first, the potential 24-hour endurance of the Vega, a clear 10 hours more than that of the Ford Trimotor, added scope for Wilkins to overfly large regions of territory between the Weddell and the Ross Seas. The region Bird felt held the most potential for his own future territorial claims and scientific discoveries. <coughs> Pardon me. Episode 75, taking advantage of the wind-free conditions available in the ionospherics room at Bransfield House, Port Lockroy. Wilkins' base of operations also threatened Bird's finances regardless of their relative achievements in the south. While Bird's radio link got copy and headlines north quickly, Wilkins might get images to his publishers aboard a whaler or a Discovery Institute vessel far faster than Bird could hope to do, and sufficiently exciting pictures might saturate the market for Antarctic news, diminishing the financial worth of Bird's own output. Bird requested that Hilton Rayleigh should look into chartering a Norwegian whale chaser to carry pictures and footage north in order to null the threat he perceived in Wilkins' renewed presence in the south. Desperate to know if Wilkins sought to contest Bird's main prize, he sent a telegram to mutual friend Isaiah Bowman of the American Geographical Society. Since we are publishing our plans, it is only fair that he should give us his. If he is going to fly to the South Pole, I want to know it. Please make urgent requests to him for his plans. Sounding like the output of a tantruming five-year-old passed through a particularly erudite iteration of Google Translate. The tribulations of a winter on site didn't offer Bird the head start he hoped for, and the infuriatingly competent Australian was at his heels once more. We're in the front porch of the Bransfield House at Port Lockroy now. These have, by necessity, been bird-heavy episodes, so let's track with Wilkins for a bit and see what led him to a second austral summer at Deception Island. On returning to New York, Wilkins' aviation pioneers received a standard Jimmy Walker hero's welcome. Ben Arson received the Distinguished Flying Cross and President Hoover presented him with the Harmon Trophy, a three-part trophy awarded annually to the world's most outstanding aviator, aviatrix and aeronaut of the past 12 months. Established by American real estate developer and founder of the International League of Aviators, Clifford Harmon. Ben Arson, on the encouragement of family members eager to see him quit such dangerous flights, parted company with Sir Hubert, heading to Alaska to establish Alaskan Airways, a long-held ambition and nothing to do with the extant Alaska Airlines. A slated $50,000 kickstart to his airline ambitions saw Eilson die when the Hamilton H-47 he piloted in company with mechanic Earl Borland crashed in Siberia while trying to extract personnel and a cargo of furs from a ship stranded in sea ice in November 1929. 
Search efforts, running for three months before Joe Crossan found the wreckage, proved the most hazardous operation of its kind to date due to particularly vicious storms through that northern winter. Wilhelmaus Stephenson, noted blowhard and callous wanker, may have been correct on one occasion when he cited diplomatic tensions between the USA and the USSR, which curtailed the sharing of meteorological information as a contributing factor to the crash. As without reliable weather information, Eilson couldn't apply his usual rigour in preparing for the flight. Large cash prizes often overwhelm practised caution, as the preferred rewards see us talking down risks and rounding down probabilities of undesirable outcomes that we would normally round up. Physics doesn't care how much you stand to gain, though, and that's true whether you're flying a rescue mission, pushing the dive tables or showing off with fireworks. I've done one of the aforementioned and it landed me both in hospital and a world of pain. 10,000 people attended Eilson's funeral in Hatton, North Dakota, where his childhood home now houses a museum dedicated to his memory and celebrating his substantial achievements. Wilkins began chasing up on his idea that a submarine might serve well in Arctic exploration. Travel under the sea ice offering the advantages of avoiding the effects of adverse weather and knowing the problems posed by surface travel on rough and broken ice. He discussed the idea with Hearst, who instead prompted the Australian to join the Graf Zeppelin, predecessor to the Hindenburg and for a long time the largest airship in the world, for a round-the-world flight organised by Dr Hugo Eckner at Hearst's encouragement and sponsorship. The international nature and guest list of the voyage captured Wilkins' imagination and he signed on. Engine problems delayed the start and while killing time in London, Wilkins received word that Suzanne Bennett went into hospital in New York prompting his prompt return, breaking off his engagement to Lorna Maitland and a promise to marry Bennett on his return from the Zeppelin trip. I recently discussed these matters with Jeff Maynard, asking why Wilkins hadn't named anything after the woman he married during the preceding exploratory flights over Graham Land. West Coast girlfriend Lura B. Shrek got a look in, and I suspect the Maitland Glacier had more to do with Wilkins' love life than the Antarctic Index of Place Names lets on. But Suzanne Bennett didn't get a look in, the conclusion of our discussion came that Bennett's proposal prompting illness comprised attention-seeking non-specific symptoms geared to scupper competition through a sympathetic response in the heart of a good-natured romantic such as Sir Hubert. Jeff also set me straight on Sir Hubert's name change. It wasn't a self-imposed shift based on a personal deference to the King that came at the prompting of Suzanne who thought that Hubert sounded more dignified. Sir Hubert falling into line with her wishes by asking friends and colleagues accept the change without question. Suzanne destroyed anything in Wilkins' possession featuring mention of, or pictures of, Lorna Maitland, leaving large gaps in the material available by which to piece together an accurate posthumous picture of the man. Wilkins rejoined the Graf Zeppelin in Friedrichshafen on the 31st of July 1929, and the world-circling flight ran smoothly. In contrast to the noisy, cramped, cold discomfort of his high-latitude flights, or the cold, acrimonious conditions aboard the Norge, the airship provided fine dining in comfort and sleeping in well-appointed and warm berths. Pictures from the voyage illustrate levels of opulence similar to the cruise ships of just a few years later, but to save weight, balsa wood formed the basis of much of the decor. It looked great, so long as no one leant against the mantelpiece. Wilkins and Dr Eckner discussed the possibility of the airship and the submarine meeting at the North Pole to exchange personnel and mail an idea they put to Hearst while in New York, receiving the publisher's big tick 
setting in motion ideas and repercussions that lie outside the scope of this series, but which are too interesting to exclude, and I hope to have Jeff Maynard back to the dive hut to discuss the voyage of the Nautilus in future episodes. The circumnavigation, covering 33,200 kilometres, took 21 and a quarter days, after which Wilkins returned to New York and made good on his promise to marry Suzanne Bennett. Hurst, meanwhile, prompted Wilkins to return to Antarctica and make further flights. Wilkins figured he could make this fit with the newly mapped Arctic plans and headed off, hoping to make further headway in instituting Antarctic weather stations where Hurst only really cared about showing up bird. Alson recommended the pilots that Wilkins took south for his second Antarctic flying expedition. Canadian, Al Cheeseman, noted among his peers as able to fix any problem arising in an airframe or engine, and Alaskan, Parker Kramer. Sir Hubert purchased a small track, a contraction of Cleveland Tractor Company, Bulldozer, to help in runway preparation to Deception Island, should land-based operations prove necessary once more. He also purchased an Austin 7 car, intending using it for hauling cargo and fuel between ship and shore across the sea ice. Wilkins fitted it with dual wheels on each corner, each pair of wheels receiving a spiral of chain over the rubber and through the spokes, to give superior traction to that achieved by Shackleton's Errol Johnson unit in 1908. On this voyage, Wilkins carried a charter signed by the King in place of the telegram from the colonial underling handed to him in Stanley in 1928. In addition to Hearst's backing, the British Colonial Office put up £10,000 and offered the use of the Discovery Committee vessel, the William Scoresby, should repositioning from Deception Island prove necessary. Once more, the expedition personnel joined the Hectoria in Montevideo, arriving at Deception Island on the 1st of November, surprised and disappointed to find the sea ice even less solid than at the start of the previous year's efforts. While at Deception Island, news of Eilson's death reached his friend and colleague, Wilkins writing, Eilson and I together had seen, in the north and in the south, more than half a million square miles of the Earth's surface that no other human eyes had ever seen. None of these would have been known so soon but for Ben Eilson's superb mastery of his job, his cool head and his gallant spirit. He was a splendid companion, as well as an expert pilot, whose personality had helped me as much as his professional skill. Wilkins set the Kleetrack dozer to work on the previous year's runway. Volcanic tooth is easy to shift, even with hand tools, but the underlying basalt substrate didn't yield to the Kleetrack's efforts. Awaiting the William Scoresby, the Vegas made short exploratory flights, news of which, relayed to Little America on the 19th of November after passing through the Hearst network, further put the wind up bird, to whom we now return our attention. Have you encountered these ones before? No. These are snowy sheep birds. They are the scavengers scavenger. Eager to get the trail parties moving so Wilkins wouldn't beat him to the pole, Bird experienced frustrating delays due to Malcolm Hansen running late in preparing the trail radio sets. Further delays arose when the canvas sledging provision bags needed replacing when those brought south turned up rotted through. The sledging plan required a four-man team led by Walden and comprising Bursey, Brathen and De Ganal lay depots every 50 miles for 200 miles to support a six-man team, led by Gould, carrying through to the Queen Mords, where they would give meteorological reports for the pole flight and act as a rescue party should anything go awry over the plateau.
Gould requested that Paul Seiple be allowed to join the geological party, considering the youngster far more mature and capable than many of his seniors. But Bird already felt he'd stretched his luck enough by letting Seiple stay through the winter, and didn't want to risk any bad publicity that would stem from any injury to the lucky winner of the Boy Scout, P.R. Gambit. Seiple ceded the dog team he'd maintained through the long dark, begrudgingly, to O'Brien, distraught at the idea of his charges being fed to their fellow dogs on the return journey. Gould's team also featured the Trust Fund boys, Thorn, Vaughan, Goodale and Crockett. With Hanson's radio sets ready, Bird tried to send the sledges on their way. Gould's team, in concert with Walden's, to give those least experienced in sledging some work up for at least two days out and back before their main push southward. The experienced sledges kicked up that the weather remained too cold for the sledge runners to actually do the job of easing the loads along the ice surface imploring that the planes be employed to ease the burden placed on the dogs by using the Ford Trimotor aircraft to establish some of the depots. Bird wouldn't countenance risking his shot at glory and the Ford remained in its hangar. The dog team set out carrying half loads, all but Thorn, who determined to make the point to Bird that they were heading out too early, a gambit in which he succeeded as his dogs couldn't pull the full load. It's been a while since I covered the physics of sledging, so I'll do a quick recap. Sledges decrease the friction of hauling a load over ice by melting the ice directly under the runners through pressure. Under ideal conditions, the weight pushes down on the runner, the runner places pressure on the ice, the ice melts under that pressure and the sledge moves forward over smooth, low friction water instead of rough and sticky ice. The half loads only moved forward through brute force exertions overcoming the friction where Thorn's sledge just sat in place until he ditched half the load. Bird didn't care that the sledges were correct. All that mattered to him was progress towards his personal goal, no matter how slow and costly. His contentment over that progress didn't last long, as the entire sledging contingent returned to Little America, finally convincing Bird that to carry on even with half loads over the dry, sandy snow, would see the dogs die in their traces, scotching Bird's plans in spite of himself. Bird broke out the Ford Model A snowmobile, placing McKinley in charge of its operation, though no one thought especially highly of it based on its pre-winter performance. When the temperature rose sufficiently to allow full loads, the sledges made a second start. Crockett staying at Little America, replaced by Peterson, who tried to bring to Ganal, who failed his winter radio operator's exam through the Antarctic University course up to speed with the equipment he was supposed to use to provide important MET reports and coordinate any rescue efforts through. Also along for the ride, at least initially, Paramount cameraman Rucker joined the party to capture footage of Antarctic heroism in the classical mould. They turned back a second time, and I, for one, am not surprised. While Bird claimed to study Amundsen's method, he missed the lessons of Amundsen's attempt to cross the barrier too early in the season. Bird lost a lot of credibility in his insistence that the geological party break itself upon the rock of his polar flight. Even his most loyal, loyal legionnaires questioning his decision not to release the Ford Trimotor to keep the depoting process on track. Eugene Rogers, writing in his Navy-sponsored account of the expedition, notes that where Bird previously accounted risk and benefit somewhat differently, when he had much to gain and little to lose in flying inadequate machines in deteriorating weather, such as during the Macmillan expedition. His age and status gave him pause at this juncture, where he had much to lose and little to gain in sending the Ford Trimotor out on a depot mission. 
The support sledges departed again on the 20th of October, but the geological party remained at Little America. The Yale boys determined that their dogs needed resting up. McKinley sent the Ford Model A out in the care of Black and Fuery. With no radio set available for the Ford, McKinley also sent Svera Strom as the Ford team's field guide, ski instructor, and only hope of salvation should the machine break down far from Little America, which no one actually expected it to do as the smart money lay on it conking out in short order. Towing several sledge loads at eight miles an hour, the adapted car demonstrated the shape of things to come, even if this particular example of the snowmobile didn't go the full distance. On the 24th, the support sledge party radioed that they'd spent a long time traversing badly crevassed terrain, roped into each other and experiencing many time-consuming falls and subsequent recoveries as snow bridges gave way under their passage. The news from home was not good on the 29th of October. The Wall Street stock market, riding high in the decade of huge optimism since the end of the First World War, teetered as agricultural oversupply, both in the USA and resulting from good harvests in Europe and Australia, coupled with unwarrantedly optimistic speculation on leveraged investments, caused instability. The London stock market crash in September 1929 gave many investors some jitters, but Wall Street forged ahead until the 24th of October, Black Thursday, when the market lost 11% of its value shortly after the opening of trading. The huge volume of information involved in the huge volume of trades that brought about this loss caused a backlog in the ticker tape services. Uncertainty over stock prices, usually reporting on a 15 minute lag, but suddenly lagging several hours, caused further panicked selling, increasing the backlog in a feedback loop. In an attempt to stabilize the market, Wall Street bankers invested heavily in steel and other blue chip stock at well above the market price, but this didn't keep the wheels on and on Black Monday the 28th and Black Tuesday the 29th of October 1929, the Wall Street stock market lost 30 billions of 1929 dollars of value, precipitating the Great Depression, its economic effects echoing around the planet for decades. This news seemed an abstraction to most of those living in Little America, who knew their accommodation and food were sorted into the foreseeable future, and few of whom held much stock in stock markets and so couldn't see what the fuss was all about but it shook Dean Smith particularly hard, having invested all of his worth in the market shortly before departing the USA. Bird, who gave Smith advice about investing before they sailed, reached into his own pocket to help Smith's family out of the financial hole, suddenly yawning beneath the aviator's feet. The fund transfer and associated instructions to Smith's broker going out over the radio. Bird's own fortune took a pummeling too, but Marie Bird divested many of their stocks earlier in October and so gave the worst of the immediate impact to swerve. For the expedition as a whole... Now I'm in the mess. For the expedition as a whole though, the impact came through in the longer term as Bird's backers, suddenly fighting for economic survival or closing their doors, could no longer offer ready support should sudden expenses come to light. The Geological Party, their dog teams featuring all the best dogs Little America could field, finally followed in the tracks of their support party on the 4th of November. They encountered the snowmobile team on their first night, 15 miles out. The car stripped its gears at the 80 mile mark and they trekked back on skis, but lacking a radio, never got word out to anyone about their plight or their progress. A large depot at the 80 mile mark was nothing to sneeze at though, and given that no one thought the Ford would achieve anything 
counted as a sizable bonus and might stand to save some canine lives. The internal combustion engine still wasn't hitting its straps in Antarctica, but with the failure this time occurring in the drivetrain rather than the engine block, as was the case in Scott's motor sledge tractors, its future looked bright so long as the engineering and the metallurgy kept improving. The geological party met the support party during the latter's return leg. Walden traded two of his best dogs for two of Gould's worst, but the tales the supporting party shared of the crevasse fields that lay ahead of them saw the geological party downcast as the two groups parted ways. Walden's men arriving back at Little America on the 9th of November. With Joe de Canal, the second most accomplished rider of the expedition, back on station, Bird fired Owen, having accumulated written tattletales, I mean, statements, reporting Owen speaking ill of his commander. Owen composed a letter affirming his loyalty and apologised, and Bird gave him his job back. Again, I am reminded of Borschgraving's midwinter standing orders, and figure that if you can demonstrate you have someone's back by writing down the words, I have your back, and signing it, then all you've actually done is demonstrate the person taking that document seriously is an idiot. And I realise Bird might have seen such documentation as leverage over a person, but again, that's not worth much when you're operating in a hostile environment at the outer edge of what technology can achieve. A legally valid and logically sound case against someone doesn't add up to much if you freeze to death while you file it. I've experienced tense situations in remote areas and it was only by confronting those matters head-on and unpacking the strata of misunderstandings and disagreements that the situation resolved in anything other than a parting of ways and bitter recriminations. A signed affidavit stating, Dear X, I have got your back, yours sincerely, Matt, would definitely not have held much sway, and I wouldn't respect anyone who thought it did. The geological party carried south much in the manner of Amundsen's pole team, Thornbroke Trail out front on skis. Thorn's dog team followed their alpha with Gould on the sledge, calling course corrections to Thorn as he read the marine compass mounted between the handlebars. A flag on a bamboo marker pole went in every half mile, and every rest stop they built a can of snow blocks. They laid a fuel and food depot every 50 miles, with a string of flags every quarter mile out to five miles, laid perpendicular to their track, to help an overland party find the cache if off course. All very Amundsen, which is to say, all very Nansen. Radio kept them in touch with Little America and they made their meteorological observations and report before breaking camp. Radio also allowed Gould to pick up the time signal from Arlington in Virginia and thereby keep his chronometer calibrated to an extent no previous Antarctic explorers managed, making his survey work the most accurate made in the south to that point. While Bird set south with the ambition of following the Norwegian example of using dogs to fuel dogs, the sledges bonded with their animals and sought every opportunity to maximise the number they might get back to Little America. But Antarctic logistics constitute a heartless master, and three weeks out, the party faced the unpleasant fact that they needed to kill four of their dogs. The weakest, those left spent after having pulled the hardest, went out under Norman Vaughan's hand to receive a bullet and a burial in a depot cache. Six pups, arising from three litters, all died, some to cannibalistic infanticide by their mother, some to freezing to death, and one given a mercy killing by the men. 
The aviators got airborne for the first time that season on the 10th of November, each taking a turn to fly over the Bay of Wales in the Fairchild, Balkan experiencing an engine failure due to fuel flow problems and making a dead stick landing. No sweat, because Balkan. As happened to Wilkins Fokker in the Arctic, engine warming using an open flame caused a fire on the Ford Trimotor, but it came under control before doing any serious damage. Parker took test pilot duty, taxiing the Ford out of its subsurface hangar and getting airborne on the 14th of November. All the pilots took their turn once more, but on the final flight of the day, the port engine began to misfire. The mechanics worked on the problematic carburetor all night to have the aircraft ready for the fuel depot flight the following morning, with Smith at the yoke. Bird sent home no news of the resumption of flying, as he didn't want to put the spurs to his perceived competitor on the far side of the continent. The weather caused delay, but on the 18th, Smith took off with June in the co-pilot seat, as per his agreement with Bird, and McKinley on the surveying camera. Bird, as was his habit, sat in the back at the navigator's table, nipping from a hip flask and taking long naps. Smith and June struggled. The tachometer for the centre engine, the big 525 horsepower job, broke, so they couldn't stick to Balkan's carefully calculated fuel consumption curve. Then the fuel line passing under their seats sprang a leak, which June patched with chewing gum like a flapper-era MacGyver. Two hours and 200 miles out, they flew over Gould's geological party, dropping a load of mail, stove fuel and sundry equipment requested over the radio. Two hours further on, they sighted the Queen Maud range, and Smith began trying to discern the Axel Heiberg Glacier. Smith landed at what he thought was the foot of the Axel Heiberg, and everyone worked to lay the depot, leaving enough fuel to get the Ford back to the barrier edge on its return flight from the pole, and enough food to stand them some chance of reaching safety if they couldn't get airborne again. They then headed east to see what they could see, out where Amundsen reported seeing mountains in what he named Carmen Land. 50 miles east of the depot, and with 50 miles visibility from altitude, they couldn't see any mountains. Carmen Land wasn't where the Norwegians reported it. Gould could concentrate his efforts on the Queen Maud range and, perhaps, set foot in Marie Birdland. The fuel tank dipstick a primitive but fail-safe method for determining the quantity of fuel remaining, told Smith and June that the unserviceable tachometer had indeed fucked their fuel consumption tracking and that they wouldn't make it back to Little America. They cut short their eastward investigations. 130 miles out from their destination, the engines began the spluttering song that tells a pilot that it's going to get dishearteningly quiet very shortly. June cut the outboard engines, simultaneously cutting power to the radio which ran off a dynamo integrated into the starboard unit. The centre engine, while the most powerful, wasn't enough to maintain height on its own at the best of times. It spluttered as the fuel ran out. June pumped the primer handle to pump the last dregs of fuel to where it served them best. Smith managed to hold height at 400 feet above the barrier surface and flew on, the centre engine only giving occasional worrying poots for a further 30 miles before also giving out. Smith landed the Ford 15 miles short of the abandoned snowmobile, itself 80 miles out from Little America. The rough snow surface tore at the skis, but Balkan's design held together. Bird put up the emergency tent, crawled inside it, then crawled inside a sleeping bag and did what it says on the label, Nobile style, 
while everyone else got to work draining the oil from the engines to prevent it freezing solid in the sumps. At Little America, radio transmissions from the Floyd Bennett ceased at 1900 hours. With Byrd, Gould and McKinley off site, it fell to Haynes as fourth in command to determine a course of action. He sent Balkan and Peterson south in the Fairchild at 2200. After an hour's flight, Peterson radioed that they'd sighted the Ford and were preparing for landing. An hour and a half passed before Little America received the next transmission, again from Peterson. Balkan landed the Fairchild near the Ford and, as everyone hoped was the case, found everyone well and the trimotor only starved of fuel. The Fairchild carried a 100 gallon spare fuel for the Ford. With the 5 gallon cans unloaded, Bird indicated Balkan could make tracks, so the Fairchild took off and headed north, while the fuel went into the fuel tanks and the oil went into the engines. They couldn't get the centre engine to start despite working long and hard on the endeavour though Bird retired early, complaining of a bad back. Chagrined, they drained the oil from the engines once more and bedded down to await the long delay to clue Haynes in to sending the Fairchild back again. This Haynes did, and Balkan and Peterson delivered more fuel, and Balkan, using the booster coil from the Fairchild, got all three of the Ford's engines running within an hour. He and Peterson watched the Ford return to the air, and... Bird and Co., having left a lot of gear behind in their eagerness to get airborne, packed up the tents and sleeping bags and skis. Running up the Fairchild's engine, Balkan couldn't get the tail ski to unstick, so Peterson got out and gave it some leverage, after which Balkan taxied slowly enough that Peterson could regain the door and haul himself aboard. The overloaded aircraft took a long time to get airborne, and Balkan recorded the takeoff run as the most violent of his career as the skis took a pounding a less heavily laden machine wouldn't require of them. Now I'm outside Brantfield House at Port Lockroy. Back at Little America, accounts of what happened differed. Bird stated that all three engines cut out at once, because only idiots would risk stretching a flight out on one engine to the point that a dead stick landing became inevitable. Smith and June kept quiet about their keeping quiet about the broken tachometer trusting to luck that they would come through where a pilot of Bennett or Balkan's mean would have pulled the pin. Balkan took the mechanical failures in the tachometer and fuel lines hard, the state of the airframes falling on his shoulders. He figured his chance of taking part in the polar flight was shot as a result, but the opposite was actually the case. Smith's handling of the tachometer and fuel leak caused embarrassment for Bird by undermining his authority in that the pilots didn't report the problem to him and by demonstrating Bird's willingness to trust to optimism where he should have decisively ordered the pilots to make a landing under power while they could, thereby decreasing the chances of doing damage to the aircraft in a heavy landing they might avoid if still able to pour on the power and go around for another try or to fly on for a short stint to seek a better landing site. The morning after he flew to their relief, Bird took Balkan out for one of the private walk and talks Grumpy as fuck, Bird asked for and received an explanation for the mechanical problems the Ford experienced, and Balkan mapped out the fixes he had in mind to ensure the polar flight didn't see the same problems recur. Bird complained to Balkan that the other pilots hadn't learnt cold weather engine handling to a satisfactory extent. Balkan recounts toying with his pocket slide rule when Bird whinged, How is it you always manage to do the right thing? Why do I have to come back to you? 
I made my mind up a long time ago you would never be my pilot, but now I have no choice. You will fly to the South Pole with me. If someone is asking why you always do the right thing in a whining and petulant tone, find some way to not be under their leadership anymore because they are asking the wrong question of the wrong person. They should be asking other people why they keep fucking up. Doing the right thing is something to praise, not something to piss and moan about as though Santa didn't bring you the preferred colour bicycle. On the 23rd of November, with Wilkins nipping at his heels in Bird's mind, further trial flights and shakedowns were chucked in preference for an all-out shot at the pole. Further forced landings would wreck his precious Ford, and further relief flights in the Fairchild would eat into the already short fuel supply. On the 25th, Wilkins' nips emerged from the imagination into stark reality as the radio operators received word from the other side of the continent that the Australian made his first flights of the new season. Gould's party still hadn't reached the Queen Maud range, but stood close enough to it to make meaningful meteorological reports. After several days socked in, the weather cleared and all boded well for a flight on the 28th. Bird ordered extra fuel and 250 pounds of additional emergency rations loaded aboard the Floyd Bennett. Balkan wasn't happy, having made his calculations for the flight based on weight, sands, Bird's last minute shopping, and told the commander to keep the excess material handy in case they needed to jettison some weight in a hurry. With Balkan in the left seat, June in the right, and McKinley in the back with his cameras, the Floyd Bennett only awaited Commander Bird, who was struggling with his white knuckles. At 15.30, Balkan took off and headed south, following the depot trail. Passing over Gould's party near the Queen Maud range, Bird dropped a parcel of chocolate, cigarettes, messages and a sheaf of McKinley's photographs from the previous flight, by which they might optimise their geologising. With the geology party behind them, the Floyd Bennett pushed into territory as yet unknown to the Bird expedition. Approaching the glacial Piedmont, the Axel Heiberg looked socked in with low fog, where the Live Glacier, named after Fritjof Nansen's daughter, appeared clear. Lacking fuel enough to dally, Bird decided on the Live, and Balkan set the aircraft into a climb. As the Ford reached 9,500 feet, Balkan found it unable to climb further. With the glacier narrowing to its southern end, he couldn't turn around, and with only 80 knots indicated airspeed, the Floyd Bennett was in danger of stalling and becoming glacial debris. Balkan called out to jettison any non-essential items, and the food bags and already emptied fuel cans went out the window. Still unable to climb enough to crest the plateau, Balkan flew to the western wall, figuring the air spilling down the glacier centre as incipient catabatic wind might be matched by a countercurrent going up the margins. His hunch proved correct, and the Floyd Bennett crested the glacier, squeaking out of a pilot's nightmare, the only upside of the situation being that cold air offers good lift per unit airspeed. The same aircraft carrying the same load up the same shaped geography in the tropics would crash. Above 11,000 feet, aviators use oxygen, but without the technology to hand, the crew of the Floyd Bennett made do with the innovation and dull-wittedness that comes with mild hypoxia. The starboard engine gave some coughs and splutters, and June made ready to vent fuel prior to the crash resulting inevitably from any loss of power operating at that altitude with that load.
but Balkan gave the fuel mixture a kick and the newly enriched carburetors saw smooth running from then on. 300 uneventful miles later, determined by Balkan's dead reckoning, as Bird didn't raise his sextant or send course corrections to the cockpit once during the flight, Bird declared their position as 90 degrees south, which was also uneventful because there's nothing there. Amundsen and Scott's remnants blew away long ago, and the pole was as undistinguished as it was throughout the glacial history of the continent. The radio call Sugar went out, alerting those at Little America of the achievement, but bewildering Gould's party, not privy to the prearranged code words. Bird dropped the US flag, weighted with the stone taken from Floyd Bennett's grave, out of the window, and June deposited a flag of the American Legion. The Norwegian flag and the Union Jack Bird sighted to placate concerns about American territorial ambitions while in New Zealand, returned north with the Floyd Bennett. Bird citing these flags' presence over the pole as sufficiently honouring the memory of his predecessors. Balkan took the reciprocal heading and Bird got out the cognac to booze himself insensible on the way north, again taking no sextant shots. Having burnt through more than half the takeoff load of fuel, the Ford crested the Axel Heiberg in a far more lively state for the downhill run, but at the Piedmont, the fuel depot didn't show where the charts showed it. June, having taken part in the depot laying, took the yoke and flew a hazy search pattern, hoping to find their ticket home. The depot, it turns out, was laid at the foot of the glacier between the Heiberg and the Liv, because Bird wasn't the navigator he promoted himself as. Refueled, the Floyd Bennett made light work of the four-and-a-half-hour flight back to the Bay of Wales, where the denizens of Little America hoisted the aviators shoulder-high and carried them indoors for Thanksgiving dinner. The flight took 17-and-a-half hours, and the Floyd Bennett spent 18-and-three-quarter hours away from Little America. Bird tried to swerve responsibility for the inept positioning of the fuel depot, but later examination of the navlog demonstrated his sextant work didn't contribute to his determination of their position relative to the South Geographic Pole. Bird relied entirely on Balkan's dead reckoning, and while this doesn't diminish that they likely got to within four miles of the pole, as near as makes no odds in terms of achievement, Bird was mostly waving his instrument in the air any time he claimed to be applying astronomical navigation. The man who took credit for the bubble sextant didn't know what he was doing when he held one to his eye and pointed it skyward. In his memoir, Bird paints himself as the leader he so desired the public to perceive him as, actively engaging in directing Balkan and June in course corrections and constantly running the calculations associated with star shots and drift corrections. But Balkan, and anyone else who flew with Bird during the expedition, remembers things differently. Bird remained removed from the active work of the flight, sometimes pissed on the cognac. But the flight landed in the Langley Medal from the Smithsonian Institute, and a leapfrog promotion to Rear Admiral approved in the Senate, and further alienating Bird from naval colleagues moving up the promotional ladder based on naval merit. On McKinley's suggestion, the alcohol came out for Thanksgiving celebrations, and while Damas drank and got sick drunk for the first time in his life, the problem drinkers of the winter months didn't try to carry on for days. Back on the other side of the continent, the William Scoresby departed Deception Island on the 12th of December, carrying Wilkins' team, the Austin 7 and one of the Vegas, and tracking south along the west coast of the Antarctic Peninsula. Sustained storms and a lack of large expanses of fast, flat ice 
prevented flying for several days, the ship turning north again after reaching the southern end of Adelaide Island. Port Lockroy, or Lockwar, on Vinca Island, provided the site for the first takeoff when the weather eventually cleared. They set the Vega on floats on the 19th of December, took off and crossed to the eastern side of Graham Land to seek suitable landing sites at which fuel and supplies might be depoted. With the engine running rough, the Vega turned to the western side and Wilkins thought he spotted promising looking ice in Bezcocia Bay on the Graham Land coast. They reloaded the Vega and headed south again, swapping the aircraft's floats for ski undercarriage as they went. Once at Bezcocia Bay, the Vega and the Austin 7 went onto the ice and quickly started to sink through it. The riggers quickly hoisted the machinery back aboard and the William Scoresby headed south again, reaching the pack ice edge 20 nautical miles south of the southern margin of Adelaide Island. This placed the pack ice edge fully 600 nautical miles further south than at the same time the previous year. The anomalous conditions coincided with droughts in North America, eventually contributing to, but still prior to, the first of the three major Midwest US Dust Bowl periods in the 1930s. This coincidence resonated with Wilkins' intuition that the Antarctic climate held tremendous influence over that in other parts of the world. Having burnt through half the ship's fuel oil, the only option lay in waiting for good weather and making the most of the takeoff opportunities offered on the package. On the 27th, Cheeseman and Wilkins got airborne and headed towards Charco Land in poor visibility. Jean-Baptiste Charcot charted peaks on Charcot land reaching 2,000 feet, but the weather only allowed a 500-foot ceiling, and while Cheeseman, bush pilot and Eilson personal recommendation that he was, could fly on instruments, that's of little interest in terms of exploration, because you can't see anything to add to your survey notes while flying inside a cloud, and any photographs you take while in there are pretty low on geographic detail. Unable to climb to a safe altitude while still doing what they came to do, Wilkins pulled the pin. In his own words, it was impossible to see more than a few feet through the swirl of snow, so we were forced down to within a few feet of the loose ice, trusting we would not strike an iceberg. I told Cheeseman to turn back. Just as the plane came around, we caught a glimpse of a mountainside through the storm. Two or three minutes delay in turning would have meant a crash. A flight on the 29th in slightly better weather allowed Wilkins to establish Charcot Land's nature as an island, and he dropped Union Jack's and Ritten territorial claims on the newly named Cape Mawson and Cape Bird. Crook weather prevented further flying and saw the William Scoresby repositioned back to Port Lockroy. On the 5th of January 1930, Wilkins and the pilots flew from there back to Deception Island, surveying as they went, while the ship headed to the Falklands to bunker fuel arriving back at Deception Island on the 25th and sailing for the peninsula once more. The penultimate flight on the 30th of January met a fierce storm before achieving much and the final flight on the 1st of February sighted no new land in a 230 mile foray due south. Wilkins dropped the final Union Jack out of the drift site window at 73 degrees south and the Vega took a reciprocal course for the ship. An earthquake shook the caldera and caused a death at the whaling station shortly after the William Scoresby arrived back at Deception Island. Wilkins never stood much chance of crossing the continent in a Lockheed Vega. Where Bird's expedition carried redundancies on several fronts, 
geared to maximise the chance a pole flight might succeed, Wilkins needed several contingencies to fall exactly into place to fulfil Hurst's stick-to-the-man dream. With a long expanse of smooth ice from which to take off, clear skies and some favourable winds for a long period, the Vega could have tested Bird's Virginian politeness by putting Wilkins at the Christmas dinner table, but short any one of those factors, Wilkins knew not to even try it on. Wilkins did as much as his machines and the prevailing conditions allowed. Wilkins returned to New York, where he announced he was through with aviation, having done as much as he thought possible in furthering his humanitarian goals. Meanwhile, in the Ross Dependency, Bird ordered the aviators begin planning flights eastward to explore the margins of the Ross Sea, the first such flight taking place three days later on the 5th of December. The weather was good, the Ford in good fettle, and Bird, Parker, June and McKinley piled in and headed off. Likely, this impulsively executed excursion came at Norwegian prompting. Trygve Grøn publicly criticised the American expedition as holding no scientific or geographic merit, and word of the dis came Bird's way through the daily radio update. Independently, Norwegian Riesel Larsen started seaplane operations on the western side of the continent using a Lockheed Vega. Bird likely wanted to make as many headlines as he could before Larsen and Wilkins began saturating the news market with Antarctic achievements. The Floyd Bennett's flight surveyed 200 miles of the coastal ranges at the margin of the Ross Sea and Parker flew them over the Matterhorn Peak sighted the previous summer by Smith, I mean Bird, before returning to Little America. Bird hooked into the brandy on the return flight and all accounts have him thoroughly pissed on arriving back at winter quarters. Balkan recorded June and McKinley as having to hold their struggling and swearing leader down on the fuselage floor. The American Geographical Society awarded Bird the Livingston Medal for the discovery of the mountains on the flight. They couldn't cite the name of the range because Bird held off naming them, negating the word honour by negotiating the best possible price for the honour with competing sponsors. Risa Larsen began his flying program to the east of the Weddell Sea two days later, and shortly after that, Mawson, also operating a seaplane, in the Australian case, a de Havilland DH-60 Moth biplane, began flying operations over the Antarctic coast to the south of Australia. Once more, with the major glory points achieved and the headlines made, Bird became reticent about further risk and pulled the pin on further long-distance flights, announcing his decision to the press on the 12th of December as a response to the rapid deterioration of conditions after the early summer. Just go back through the copious notes you're making as you listen and clock when the first flight took place after the expedition arrived on the barrier, the 15th of January. And while I grant the final flights made that season on the 22nd of March took place in marginal conditions, the planned flying program extended well into February so this really does look like Bird feathering his legacy nest by doing everything he could to avoid dying before getting home for his ticker tape parade. The calculus of much to lose and little to gain, reinforced by Marie Bird imploring her husband rest on his laurels and come home, curtailed further geographic and scientific effort. Gould's party expected a depot flight to bring them dog food, but Bird wouldn't countenance putting the aircraft up again after his 12th of December announcement. 
Several competing hypotheses exist to explain his reticence in the face of repeated reasonable requests to bring enough food to avert the need to butcher dogs to keep the dogs fed and sustain flying in good weather. It could be that Bird wouldn't risk his own neck in further flying, but also wouldn't let other people fly without him in case something untoward happened and left him looking like a shirker, or in case something interesting turned up that he couldn't claim personal discovery of. The gasoline shortage might also have played a role. Smith and Harrison gave voice to the suspicion that Bird was stage managing Antarctic drama for the sake of the public perception of their efforts. Geological party returns to Little America after successful sledge journey is Amundsonian in its dull competence. Geological party returns to Little America after life and death struggle with the elements, killing the weak dogs to feed the strong as their very lives depended on the sacrifice, is killer copy, and Bird, openly acknowledging himself as being in the hero business, may have been manufacturing heroism from whole cloth at this point. Tragedy among the geological party would mar the expedition, but Gould would wear the lion's share of any resulting opprobrium, and Bird wasn't the one fighting off frostbite and contemplating killing his canine companions. In the abstract, he could make the decision to sustain the distress of the six men out on the trail without qualm, and Smith and Harrison's read of the situation fits neatly with my understanding of Bird's character. Gould, still at the Queen Maud Mountains, felt badly stiffed by Bird. During the pole flight, allegedly the reason for being where they were, when they were, their studious watch by the radio receiver only yielded bewildering nonsense as the code words compiled to thwart any ears that might report news to the New York Times competition weren't shared with the geological party. Obviously the code key couldn't arrive via radio, but with the plane's track passing over them, Bird might have dropped a key that could see Gould lead a rescue effort if necessary and stand down when no longer needed. The geological party received, but couldn't understand or respond to, Encore, Janitor, Frenchman and On Alaska, used to alert Little America to the progress of the Floyd Bennett. Gould worked out the sequence of events secondhand and sent his congratulations to his commander in similarly baffling gibberish. The Floyd Bennett did drop a parcel of photographs, but the most important one, showing a huge crevasse field in their path, received derisive dismissal by the geological party. The straight edges of the huge chasms looked enough like scratches from a damaged negative that Gould and co wrote them off as either a prank or a misstep in McKinley's processing. Eugene Rogers, writing in Beyond the Barrier, notes the supposition that the Little Americans would try to pull such a prank, or that they might send such badly flawed intelligence, stands as some indication of the sense of betrayal the geological party felt toward those at winter quarters. Given the code debacle and Bird's unwillingness to send an aircraft in support of their efforts, the suspicion wasn't without merit, but the crevasse field was real and every bit as awful as the photograph indicated, and Gould blithely led his men straight into it. The worst crevasses experienced to date slowed progress to a crawl, and strong winds flinging grawple in their faces slowed that crawl to a dead stop. When they could travel, the sledges crossed snow bridges one at a time with long ropes ready to take the weight should a dog team break through a bridging crust. Many men and dogs went through the surface, saved by their harness and the momentum of the team, and many snow bridges collapsed immediately in their wake, but the team experienced few really bad falls and the subsequent taxing rescues. 
On reaching the Live Glacier, the men celebrated, feeling rocks under their feet for the first time in a year. And those dogs born at Little America circled these unfamiliar geological anomalies warily. The crevasse field caused physical and emotional exhaustion, and they set their camp wearily. Gould recounting, One of the boys, with his spoon halfway to his mouth, suddenly dropped off to sleep. His bowl of pemmican slipped from his fingers and spattered over the man beside him. Too tired to remain awake for food is pretty fucking tired. The following day Gould began geologizing and Thorne and O'Brien hooked into the survey work. A second tranche of dogs went to the butcher's knife, but the next group slated for execution received a reprieve when the men noticed the dogs not only sought out and ate human excrement, but that it served to keep them in good enough fettle that they could likely make it back to Little America. One of the sledges took to serving this to his favourites, hot and fresh, squatting beside the trail as the dog sat by, excitedly waiting its treat with wagging tail. Not the most inspiring moment in the annals of Antarctic heroism, but likely to get a big tick from the dog lovers. During the ascent of Mount Nansen, Goodale spotted lichens growing on an outcrop of rock, standing as the southernmost life found in Antarctica, and Gould identified beacon sandstones of the same kind as geologists in the British expeditions of the heroic era identified in Victoria land, suggesting the Queen Maud's formed part of a contiguous range, the largest fault block system on the planet. Also, as per the Victoria land fountains, the beacon sandstone stood as a marker for seams of low-grade coal, the first of which Gould found the following day. Gould found and depleted the polar flight depot, no longer of use to anyone but themselves, of as much food as their dogs could haul, further enhancing the prospects of the remaining dogs, before heading east into Marie Birdland on the 13th of December. On the 21st of December, they reached the margin of the new territory. Gould and his men climbed a peak, made a can of stones, and deposited therein a tin can containing a note claiming the region in the name of Richard Evelyn Bird, and on the behalf of the United States of America. On the 25th of December, the party camped near Mount Betty, named after Amundsen's girlfriend, and found the note-holding can erected by the Norwegian party, this forming a calibration point between their own survey work and that of the earlier explorers. They built their own can and added their own note for future travellers to find. Gould turned his party north and kicked off the homeward leg, Crevasses opened in their wake, the weight of their passing stressing the already stressed ice beyond the tension point it could stand, the chasms opening with a rifle shot sound, giving the team the spurs the entire time they crossed the crevasse fields. Also spurring them to great sledging efforts, the idea that the longer they stayed out, the more dogs they must butcher. This concern for their dogs saw the party sledge on in conditions that caused past sledging parties to hunker down for days at a time. The weather improved and days got sufficiently warm and the men were sufficiently inured to the cold that Vaughan occasionally took to skiing in the nip but for his boots. Their arrival back at Little America drew praise from their fellow expedition members, the American Geographic Society and from British and Australian Antarctic geologists Frank Debenham and Griffith Taylor, who praised the expedition as the greatest boon to Antarctic science since the BAE Mark III under Scott. Griffith Taylor's original predictions regarding aviation in Antarctica appear overly pessimistic from our end of the historical telescope, 
but keep in mind that he based his opinion on what he saw of Antarctic weather under Scott and what he knew of aircraft operating at the time. I don't think any human endeavour to that point in history prompted as rapid a development of technology as occurred in the first 50 years of aviation. Brownsfield House, back in the vestibule. Oh. I don't think any human endeavour to that point in history prompted as rapid a development of technology as occurred in the first 50 years of aviation. With the short hops made by the pioneers leading to transonic jets and world-girdling flights in less than half a century. Regardless, Taylor ate his words. Happy Bird proved him wrong by operating aircraft successfully where he previously thought such flights impossible. Seeing Bird and Wilkins' visions for aerial exploration as both vindicated and exciting. Taylor also noted that erasing Amundsen's Kármán land from the maps constituted a significant achievement, a null result still being a result in a scientific context. The expedition also exhibited the globe-spanning potential for shortwave radio, setting new distance records for transmission and allowing consistent daily contact between big and little Americas, invariably running to tens of pages of text. Nothing to get too excited about compared to the present-day data transmissions, but where previously implacable silence reigned, that constituted big news. In the first steps of a long and distinguished Antarctic research career, Paul Seipel made soundings and calculated the depth of the Ross Sea beneath Little America as a kilometre deep. He also made observations and measurements of Waddell seal pups born near Little America. June and McKinley made the expedition's final flight to map the Bay of Wales from the air, Bird joining them to scout a location for a second Antarctic expedition winter quarters that he and Hilton Rayleigh were already discussing. Bird assigned Paul Seipel the task of collecting 20 emperor penguins for zoos in the USA. Seipel corralled the animals into a pit dug in the snow, but they proved excellent escape artists, climbing over the top of each other or cutting steps in the neve with their beaks. Unsuccessful attempts at breaking out saw the penguins turn to any watching humans, waving their flippers in a wax-on, wax-off motion and squawking as they moved back into the recesses of their confinement. No recording of the squawking remains, but I'm sure it sounded something like, you didn't see anything. With the expedition goals kicked, the volunteer status of the people it comprised told on Bird's ability to inspire action, particularly in the period between Christmas and New Year's, when people missed home comforts and company the most. A work detail on the 30th of December only drew six pairs of hands, everyone else lying in, many of them working through hangovers caused by a return of the sly groggy, this time tapping the medicinal alcohol supply. All the good brandy, also medicinal according to Bird's responses to probing questions about the probity of taking alcohol aboard the city of New York during the Prohibition, already being consumed. The presence of more whaling interests in the Ross Sea, initially seen as a boon to Bird in the sense he had more vessels he might call on for assistance, came to prove a hindrance to the expedition in that the increased competition for resources saw factory vessel captains less willing to divert the chaser vessels under their instruction to duties other than whaling. While the Alonso, carrying supplies for Bird, made it through the pack ice, the worst on record, it lost one of its chasers in the process and sought to make up on the two weeks lost in the unexpectedly trying Southern Ocean transit, bird supplies taking a low priority. A last minute update and one pertinent only to listeners in Melbourne. I'll be presenting a truncated version of Diving with the Kiwis Among the Penguins, 
at Nerd Night on the 20th of February 2019. Nerd Night is a monthly science cabaret at The Howler, and I'll be one of three presenters sharing my geek passion with the audience on the night. With 20 minutes to cover ground I normally allocate an hour to, you can be sure my presentation's pared down to the best of my best images, illustrating the most important points about the physical and physiological challenges posed by life in the sea at 78 degrees south. Tickets are 10 bucks and available online from the Nerd Night website, with night in Nerd Night spelt N-I-T-E. If you come up to me and say adiabatic warming, I'll know you've at least listened to this episode and will buy you a drink or give you a book from the recent cull geared to keep my Antarctic bookshelves from collapsing. And a big thank you to everyone who kicked into the series PayPal account. I bought a copy of Stephen Haddlesey's Operation Tabarin with some of the proceeds and it's informing future episodes of the series. Take care even more and appreciate your coffee by a factor of 105%.